cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Adam Carr, and he is head of Orbis US and portfolio manager at the company's global equity strategy. The firm manages over $37 billion in assets. Orbis has just an absolutely fascinating history. Their founder was a portfolio manager at Fidelity for a while. His name is Alan Gray, and he went out and launched Alan Gray Limited in 1973, eventually becoming South Africa's biggest private investment manager. They expanded in in 1989 uh, to be more international, and that's when Orbis was created. The firm is really quite fascinating for so many reasons. Their track record has been outstanding. Their fee structure is fairly unique in the industry, very much aligning clients' interests with the firm and the employees of the firm's interest. I know everybody sort of pays lip service to that. These guys really do that. You pay for alpha and nothing else, and if the firm underperforms its benchmark, you get refunds on your fees and then some. It's really very, very unique and and very interesting. In addition, their their structure, what Alan Gray did with his original shares, is quite fascinating. All told, this is really quite an intriguing conversation. I think you're going to find it quite interesting and unique in the world of investing. So with no further ado, my conversation with Adam Carr of Orbis Investments. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Adam Carr. He is the head of Orbis US and portfolio manager for Orbis Investments, a firm which runs about $32 billion in assets. The firm's flagship global equity strategy has outperformed its benchmark MSCI World Index since its 1990 inception, Orbis brings a unique fee structure to clients who only pay when the firm outperforms. Adam Carr, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, same here. Uh, so so let's, let's start with your background before we work our way to Orbis. How did you first get interested in investing? I, I, I read something that used to help your grandfather... <laughs> clean up banks at night and you started reading docs that were lying around that led to an interest in finance. It, it, give us a little background on that. 
Barry. I, w- I wish I was that precocious. Um, so uh, taking it back, I, I first became captivated with investing in middle school. I guess it was the late 70s, uh, early 80s. I grew up in Illinois, the south suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandfather. He was a, a janitor and a caretaker for a local savings and loan. And I used to go with him every night to help clean the bank. Um, and I would mop floors and dump out um, waste paper baskets. And there was this really interesting newspaper in the garbage um, that looked different than anything that we had at home or school or anywhere else. And it had these odd-looking dot matrix photos on the cover. Um, and, uh, of course, that was the Wall Street Journal. And I just was fascinated by looking at the paper, trying to follow the stories. I can't say that I really understood it. I certainly wasn't reading bank documents. Um, but it was, it was that that really started me in the journey of getting really interested in the market. On, on Friday nights, um, we didn't have to go to the bank because we could go on Saturday. And we used to watch Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week every Friday night. And in the beginning, sure. you know, I would just, I did it because it was a way to spend time with my grandfather. Uh, but over time, I really came to enjoy it. Um, and I think that was really just the genesis for me getting quite interested in markets and companies. The, the fascinating thing about that period is the pace of Wall Street Week and the pace of Rukeyser was so different than what we experience today. Uh, do, do you look back at that period as sort of a kindler gentler era or was that just part of the inevitable evolution of finance i mean to be honest barry i was nine or ten years old so i can't say that (laughs) i i could put it in context in full construct um but it was just for whatever reason it was just fascinating to me um and uh really planted the seeds early so so let's fast forward a little bit to your current philosophy not that when you were nine years old, you talk about having four core pillars of your beliefs, thinking like a business owner, contrarian thinking, long-term perspective, and being unconstrained. Tell us about those four and and how that belief system developed. Yeah, so um, it's probably helpful, and I'll dive in on the pillars just to, to give a little bit of context on Orbis. So Orbis is in its 30th year, uh, founded in 1989 by uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan Gray, South African. Um, so what is Orbis? We're a global equity specialist. Today we manage about $37 billion in AUM across the globe through a handful of long-only, absolute return, and multi-asset strategies. Um, Orbis Global Equity is our flagship strategy, and it represents 60 70% of our total AUM. We're mostly institutional, with the exception of some retail in Australia and the U.K., our investment approach is pretty simple at the end of the day. Um, we strive to buy assets at a meaningful discount to intrinsic value. Um, I think the key term there is intrinsic value. We're not deep value managers who simply buy didactically based on low price to book. Um, we try to think much more holistically about the true value of each business as an owner. Um, and we try to go after it when there's some kind of dislocation. Um, We've got a deep team of analysts, about 35, all around the world in local markets. Um, 
And we're really of the mind that if you if you want to generate an alpha, you got to go against the crowd uh, and think and act differently. Our strategies, our equity strategies, are all unconstrained, uh, so they're going to look very different to the benchmark. And we tend to run pretty concentrated. Our global strategy's got about 60 positions, with our active share running over 90%. Um, now, there's a couple of aspects about Orbis that are pretty unique, uh, one of which is how we think about fees. Um, all of our fee structures are performance-based. Um, we can dive into that more deeply. But in a, in a nutshell, we're contrarian intrinsic value equity managers. Now, in terms of the, the pillars and how they interact, I think it's, it's worthwhile to say, you know, sort of our DNA of who we are is deeply rooted in our founder. Um, and his view, this is going all the way back to South Africa when he first launched our sister firm, is that if you want to generate an alpha, you have to go against the crowd. Um, and I can still hear Alan to this day say, you know, if you want to be good, work hard. But if you want to be exceptional, you have to come at the problem completely differently. You've got you to turn it on its head. Um, and so this really kind of informs the pillars. And I think of it kind of the way that Jim Collins talks about flywheel. Like there's no one silver bullet. It's the way that they interact together. Um, and so the first is, is this concept of independent thinking. Um, you have to attract and retain highly independent-minded people, people that love and relish having a view that's different to others. That's the heart and soul, I think, of, of how we try to construct our model. Um, and then, two, you have to structure the firm and the values and the culture that rewards independent minded people. They like to do things that are different. So you have to create a structure that allows them to do that. And one of the things that we do, all of our analysts manage their own paper portfolios. And so that it's quite different than a lot of shops and I'm not picking on any shop, but in many places the analysts will, you know, in air quotes, pitch names to PMs. Um, for us, the analysts are putting forward what they would buy themselves and be accountable for objectively. Um, and it's interesting because when I talk about this in recruiting to prospective analysts, you can see some, of, some, some analysts are really drawn to that. You can see them lean in. They're excited about it. And some lean back and like, ooh. Um, and you can tell that it, it kind of intimidates them. And the point there is that it's, it's, it's a self-reinforcing system that attracts people to us and helps us retain the individuals that are most aligned with that. So, so let let me jump in right over here uh, before we get to the other pillars. I recall reading an article about you and the firm some time ago, um, maybe it was 2015 in Barron's, where one of the analysts was pitching Nike, which was rolling out this new fangled direct-to-consumer Nike.com idea and pitched to everybody in the firm all called in from around the world and was fairly savaged in in various critiques and and counter arguments and pushback but ultimately the firm ends up buying half a billion dollars worth worth of nike which has been a giant home run ever since um is that typical for the process is that how that usually runs 
Yes. So that's a, I mean, that's a great example, Barry, in the sense that, you know, many firms, and again, not a critique, but many firms will manage their portfolios on a committee basis. Um, and our belief is that the best decision, particularly contrarian decisions, are not made by committees. They're made by individuals who've done the work and have the conviction and are willing to be accountable for those decisions. Um, now, we obviously don't put people in positions to move capital for clients right away. It's based on a demonstrated track record. Uh, but our capital allocators have demonstrated those track records, um, and it's not a committee decision. And so in the Nike situation, it was a very contentious investment committee. Um, and in fact, you know, myself and the analyst, um, I would say we're on one side relative to the rest of the, of the investment team. And the core issue there, I mean, nobody would, would dispute that Nike is a great company and has great content and is very creative and great athletes, but the, they were making a big pivot to go online and go direct. And the key question, the burning question was, will that be better and more profitable for Nike going forward? And our thesis was that in cutting out wholesale, you eliminate that margin and they'll be able to retain it. And there's a lot of other reasons why we think it's going to be better or thought it was going to be better, but it was a very contentious issue. Um, we had the investment committee, great discussion and debate. I mean, there were points raised that we stepped back and spent time on, but at the end of the day, as a portfolio manager, then I made a decision to take a position. Um, and that's the core premise of how we invest, of allowing individuals to express themselves where they have conviction. So that raises a second somewhat related issue as to – the difference between traditional value, you, you very disdainly mentioned price to book, which has done quite poorly the past, uh, I don't know, 20 years, um, certainly the past decade. But you keep bringing up intrinsic value, and I'm wondering how much of that intrinsic value allows, that definition allows you to embrace more of a posture that includes some out-of-favor growth stocks. For sure. So um, I think we, you know, we've got a 30-year track record. If you look across those 30 years, it's across many different cycles and market environments, growth value. Um, and we, by far, we tend to do best in you know, classic value markets. Um, I think where we differ from our peers, however, is that we, we do okay in growth markets. Um, and why is that? We're not didactic. Um, first of all, what is value? We're not didactic around what value is in the sense that it's a, it's a hard parameter around price to book or a specific PE metric above which we won't buy. What we really think about holistically is the business the quality of the business, the durability of the cash flows, the ability of those cash flows to grow over time, the moat. Um, and then we look at the price, and we go after situations when we see a meaningful gap <clears throat> Excuse me, between those two. Um, that's what we are as a manager, and I think you know everybody likes to put you in a box, um, Morningstar, others. And the way we like to say it is our dot moves around. You know, don't put us in any one box. The dot moves around, and I think it's because the areas of the market that are offering the most value move around over time. Um, and that's something that we've always lived to 
um, and hopefully it's been beneficial for our clients over time. So, so you get to run the U.S. segment of what, what is a global portfolio. Obviously, the U.S. market has been pretty dramatically outperforming the rest of the world, not just in, in 2020, but pretty much since the end of the financial crisis in, in 2009. How long do you think this relative outperformance of U.S. versus overseas is going to last? Are we ever going to see any form of mean reversion? Or have things aligned in such a way that, hey, this could go on for who knows how long? Yeah, um, <laughs> $64,000 question. I mean, to your point, Barry, I think, you know, the returns in the U.S., uh, which is where I live and breathe, have been sensational relative and historic context. I think the S&P since 2009 has compounded at 15%. The NASDAQ's compounded at 20%. 20, two to three X, the long-term seven to 8% average. Um, in some ways it's surprising, in some ways not. Um, I mean, I've not studied it empirically, uh, so take it with a grain of salt, but, you know, in speculating some of the drivers, I mean, I think the most dominant force in the market globally and in the U.S. over the past decade has been monetary intervention, um, which has truly been unprecedented. And by and large, and I'm sure others would would disagree, but I would say leadership, Bernanke, Yellen, now Powell, um, has been pretty constructive. So I think that's been the context within which this has been enabled. Um, But there's really been an insatiable appetite for growth, non-cyclical growth, secular growth. Um, And if you look at the market structure today, what do you see? I mean, the top five companies, now six, if you include Tesla in there, in the S&P are 25% of the of the S&P, which by historical standards is now quite concentrated. There's now over 50 stocks um, that trade at more than 10 times revenues. Um, and that's just in the S&P. And there's all kinds of stocks outside of it, like Snowflake and DoorDash and Zoom, that trade at pretty heady multiples. Um, and so it's been underpinned by exceptional revenue and earnings growth and exceptional um, multiple expansion. Um, and it's been that mix that's created this this cocktail combined with lower taxes and lower regulation and falling wage burden um, that's created a pretty powerful cocktail. Um, so the most important question is where to from there, um, where to from here. And, um, you know, by historical constructs, spreads are quite wide, um, quite wide. And, you know, we don't make forecasts and there's not a prediction as to when it'll turn or why it'll turn. Um, But we're of the belief that that will and should normalize in time. Um, And I think simplistically, that's around the fact that it's unsustainable for the market to compound at that rate. Um, and when you look back, you look at Orbis's history, you go all the way back to 1990. You know, I think Japan was something like 45% of the world index. And we had zero exposure to Japan on the view that that was extreme and grossly overvalued. You go to 99, 2000, um, you know, there was an area of the market, technology, 
and we were on the other side of that and tobaccos and whatnot. Um, and you look at today, and those spreads are just as wide, if not wider. And we do, as we said today, we have a pretty meaningful underweight to the U.S. I think the U.S. is now 65 66% of the world index, and we are about half that in our global strategy. Um, so we're on the other side of that. Um, and it's interesting because, um, you know, when you look at it and you look at the data and you think about it, it seems like, you know, it's clear what one should think about doing. But when you're in the moment and it's been painful in getting there, it's hard to do. And I think that really speaks to the behavioral side of investing, which is one of the aspects of investing that it's always attracted me the most is that it's most difficult when you're in those moments. And I think now is one of those times. Huh. Quite, quite intriguing. La- last question about these topics. So you run the U.S. segment of what is a global investment company. What is your day-to-day job like? What, what is your actual title? What are you responsible for? Are you running the team? Are you running the portfolio? Tell us exactly um, what what your job entails. Sure. So um, I've been investing for about 25 years, both public and private markets, last 18 years at Orbis. I joined Orbis in 2002. And so today I'm responsible for the U.S. efforts of the firm. Um, and our U.S. team is, is based in San Francisco. I'm one of the five capital allocators um, or PMs for the flagship global strategy. So I'm the PM for the the U.S. strategy. That's my day-to-day, which is a lot of reading and a lot of interacting with my investment team um, in terms of sourcing and thinking about uh, ideas. I also sit on our um, global management committee, which I've done for just about 15 years. Um, but I think at the core, you know, I started as an analyst, as a generalist in Bermuda, which is where the firm's headquartered. Um, and today, uh, I do the same thing. I picked up a lot of other responsibilities along the way. But first and foremost, you know, we're bottoms-up fundamental stock pickers as analysts, understanding businesses. And that's what I, I spend the majority of my time doing. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Huh, quite fascinating. You only take a fee when your funds outperform your benchmark. And not only that, you return fees when you underperform. Explain the genesis of this and, and how it works in, in the real world. So 
Genesis. Um, and it, to, to do that, I'm just going to tie it back quickly, Barry, to the kind of the four pillars to round that out. So pillar one, people independent-minded. Two, structure, give them a space to be independent-minded and express themselves. And the third pillar is around alignment, um, is to seek aligned clients in a way that our incentives are truly aligned. Um, and then the fourth pillar is to structure the firm's ownership to promote putting us in a position to take a long-term view and differentiated actions. And just on that last point, you know, the firm is privately held. Our founder vested his, his interest into a charitable trust. So that charitable trust uniquely will own Orbis in perpetuity. Um, and the significance of that is it allows us to take actions uh, that are longer term, and they're differentiated, and that, that relates to the fees, and, I, and I'll tie it. So specifically on the fees, um, the genesis goes all the way back to the beginning and the core value around alignment. Um, we've only had performance fees uh, in the history of the firm. Our original fee, if you go back to 1990, was a base fee of 150 basis points with 100 basis points fulcrum fee up and down, fully symmetrical. Um, but our structures evolved um, as the markets evolved, and I think improved. So let me let me touch on the principles of it, and then I'll talk specifically. So, in a perfect world, a client wouldn't pay any fees um, until they redeemed, at which time they would just pay based on the value that you added. Um, obviously, that's impractical because managers need to to pay bills. But the the principle of alignment around that is is the key to to our approach. Um, and so we, we try to do that in two ways. The first is just management and staff co-invest in the same vehicles with the same fees, and we're the largest investor. And the second is that all of our fees are performance-based, fully symmetrical, and we refund the fees when we underperform. So they only pay a fee if we're adding value. And so the best example is what we call our zero-based fee option, which is for institutional clients of size. And so they, they pay no base fee, and they only pay a performance fee if we deliver alpha. Um, and on that alpha, the sharing ratio is two-thirds to the clients and one-third to us as the manager. Um, if we subsequently underperform, then those fees are refunded, um, and they go into a trust account, which sits there for the client in future. Um, it's important to think about the incentives there. Um, because we, you know, our incentives are not to grow AUM. We don't survive unless we generate alpha and add value, um, which isn't to say that we can guarantee that we will do such, but we can say that we're fully aligned and we feel the pain when we don't deliver. Um, what's interesting about this is we, we first introduced this refundable fee structure in 2004, um, and I think it's fair to say that clients were pretty skeptical um, of the structure. I think there was a lot of questions around, you know, well, why would you do this? There must be some kind of gotcha in here. Um, <laughs> this just has to be better for you. And um, But I think now we've had well over a decade of, of history with the structure. I think if you were to speak to clients, um, it's, been, it's been a wonderful alignment vehicle, um, what we've seen in practice is that when we go through periods of underperformance, which we inevitably do, um, clients are reluctant 
to redeem because they've got fees sitting in that um, reserve account. And number one, it dampens that relative underperformance because you have those fees being credited back. And two, you see an asset there and you're reluctant to crystallize it because you know it's there. Now, for us as a manager, that's ideal because it means that we don't have lockups or any restrictions, that the clients are sticking with us at exactly the time when it's most critical for us as a manager, such that we're not fighting redemptions at that time when we have a drawdown and allows us to lean into those positions um, when potentially it's most attractive to do so. And so that's, uh, it's been a very powerful alignment between us and our clients. And one of the things that we, we measure ourselves on, which I think doesn't get talked about enough in the industry, is the behavioral penalty. Um, you can look at a manager with a phenomenal track record um, but what did the clients actually realize? And oftentimes that gap is quite wide. We obsess over fees and the lowest cost fees, but if you look at the actual data, the behavioral penalty blows away in many cases the relative difference that you see um, in terms of where managers strike fees. And what we've seen in practice over the past decade plus is that that behavioral gap has come down considerably, which is actually is is directly tied to what we're trying to do in terms of our premise. Um, so it's something that we've, um, we've been very pleased with. Now, I guess the other side of it is, you know, why, why don't more people do it? But before we get to why more people don't do that, I want to make sure I fully get the details of the fulcrum fee. So institutional account, I'm going to assume $100 million and up. No base fee, meaning no annual fee. So you outperform in a given year and you take some of your fee, which is based on 33% of the alpha that's generated, and that goes into a trust that sits and waits for the eventual underperformance and is then used to reimburse some of client losses or, or at least client underperformance. Am I getting that more or less right? Yeah, directionally. So um, two fees, so our, our zero base, which is for institutional accounts above $100 million. No base fee, a two-thirds, one-third sharing ratio. And then we have our core, which is for clients less than that, institutional clients. Um, 45 base fee, management fee, with a 25% sharing ratio. Um, now, I'll use that as the example going forward. So we, we generate alpha. It goes into what we call our reserve account. From that reserve account, it doesn't flow out to us as a manager until we accrue more than 3% of NAV in the reserve account. And once it goes above that threshold, it can flow out to us at a ratio, at a, at a rate of 1% per annum. Um, so we're building up the reserve account before anything goes to us as the manager. That reserve account is actually invested, reinvested in the funds, and so that, that's what it sits in, in the reserve account. And then in periods of underperformance, that underperformance at the same sharing ratio, in this case 25%, is credited back to the NAV of the client. The other thing that's important to, to wow. mention here is that the client fee is, the, sorry, the fee is bespoke to the individual client and their experience from inception. So they're not taking on the characteristics of the pool. It's specific to their individual experience. 
Makes sense. It's set up as an SMA, not as a, a, a fund. Is that what you're saying? It's a pooled vehicle, but the fee is got individual it. to them. I got it. It's very specific. So my firm, we bill quarterly, and it's like a big deal. Uh, we're recording this the first week of the new year. Sometime this week, we're running uh, different billings at Fidelity, at Schwab, at TD, uh, on clients. And, and it's a whole process to do. You guys assess performance fees twice a month. How complicated is that? And what's the thinking behind that sort of um, performance fee assessment? What are the advantages and disadvantages of that? So we, we strike twice a month or when the client transacts. Um, so it's an either or. And the reasoning and benefit is the fee is, is individual and bespoke to the client. That's, right. that's what it brings them. Um, and you can imagine from the client perspective, there's, you know, there's a lot of value in that. Um, I think the disadvantage from a firm perspective is, I think what you were alluding to, is there's, a, there's an operational burden and complexity behind that. Um, and when we launched this going back to 2004, you know, it was a, a meaningful investment um, operationally and capital to build out the infrastructure to, to be able to support it. Quite interesting. So I first learned of you guys, and you in particular, via a Wall Street Journal article written by Jason Zweig that was one of the first um, mainstream pieces really delving into the details of, of the fulcrum fee. And we're an RIA, so we can't really do the same sort of um, symmetrical fee sharing that you guys do. The, the complications make yeah. it all but impossible. But, but we were very much inspired by what you did and, and created um, what we call Milestone Rewards, which is simply if you're an individual investor and you exhibit good behavior, meaning you complete your financial planning, you do an annual up update, and you don't dabble with, I don't like emerging markets, so I'm going to jettison that from my portfolio, um, <laughs> unbeknownst to us, to us uh, on a random sort of thing will end up dropping people's fees after three years of good behavior. Hey, you've learned, we've helped to teach you the right way to do this, and now you're, you're exhibiting better behavior. And besides, most of the heavy lifting is really in the first couple of years, so we'll, we'll reduce um, your fees. So that was our response to your media coverage what sort of response did you get to that media coverage? Uh, what did clients say, and what did prospective clients have to say? It's interesting from a client perspective uh, because it's um, you know it's complex. So I think if you are an agent and you have to go and represent it to the board, it's it's viewed as complex and, and different. Um, and, you know, we know the appetite for those, um, the, the clients that have been with us and have experienced it, I think tend to be our greatest advocates. Um, and in a way this speaks a little bit to one of the points I mentioned earlier around the pillars is that it creates a bit of a, 
a self-reinforcing mechanism. Um, what I mean by that is that clients that sort of intuit, intuitively understand this um, and can appreciate the benefits uh, are drawn to us, um, whereas others aren't. Um, and so we're not being shopped for the lowest fee, but for the best alignment. Um, and, and that works for us. We're not trying to be everything to everybody. And that sort of self-selection aspect, I think, is something that we've seen play out in practice. And then if you just look at the numbers in terms of the behavioral penalty over time, um, I think, you know, that's speaking to it objectively. I'd be curious, Barry, since you mentioned, you know, your own actions, what have you seen from your clients and what kind of, have you seen a difference? Do you look at the behavioral penalty side? What has it done in your business? So it's done a couple of things. Um, one is, hey, the whole industry is under fee pressure. Um, and like you, I'm, I'm a student of behavioral finance. And so rather than merely lower fees and get no behavioral result out of it, we try to craft a fee reduction program that, you know, we make a big deal about telling prospective clients about it and reminding clients regularly, hey, you have to you have to do your annual review, you have to, you know, do your financial plan. We want to cut your fees 15%, but you got to check these boxes. And so it's more than just competing on price because uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to compete with Vanguard, who's yeah. gonna, or BlackRock, who's gonna, yeah. who's gonna compete with their four BIP funds. We, we use both of their funds because they're so inexpensive. But instead, we want to do what we can to create. I, I mean, I, I I'm not a fan of all the cutesy versions of Alpha, Tax Alpha, Advisor Alpha, Behavioral Alpha. But but there is something to the concept that. If you can get people to think about their investments in a way that helps lead to better behavior, ultimately, that's going to have as big an impact as anything else you can possibly do. So net-net, it's been a giant positive, even though it's, it's definitely, like you, it, it's an administrative um, project. There's a whole lot of organizational alpha that goes behind this. There's just a lot of moving parts. And it took us a couple of years to really polish that up and, and get it well. We've only been doing it for, I don't know, I want to say four or five years. You guys are a decade and a half into it. So I, I have to think that you have pretty much worked all the bugs out that that might have appeared in, in the early days. What what sort of issues arose when you first rolled this out? I mean, it's, when we first rolled it out, you know, it was sort of, um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was kind of crickets. Um, What's interesting, as you said, is, you know, the industry's evolved quite a bit, and it's going to need to continue to evolve. And so I think the the appetite for this kind of discussion um, has changed pretty meaningfully. Um, and, you know, we feel good about it because this is something we've done for a decade plus, and we've done all the operational stuff. Um, but there's another side of this, too, which is think about it from the firm's perspective and from the partnership in that, you know, it makes for a much more volatile earnings stream. Um, and we had to go through, you know, a multi-year period where we were reserving on our own balance sheet by distributing less than we would otherwise do so that we could build up reserves to manage 
the volatility that would come to the firm because of this fee structure. Um, and many years to do that. Another form of investment outside of just the operational side. We have that in place now, but, you know, that's, that's not for every firm is going to want to do that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how the, the industry evolves over time because it, even if you want to do it as a firm, I think doing it in practice is a non-trivial initiative. To say the very least. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So you describe yourself as a contrarian value investment manager. 2020 was certainly an outlier of a year in so many ways, how do you describe where we are in the market cycle? What do you think is going on in that battle between value and growth? So I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the Jesse Livermore quote um, in Reminiscence of a Stock Operator where one of his customers asked, you know, what should I do? And, and he looks at him and he's like, well, you know, it's a bull market. Um, and I feel like, you know, kind of that the music's playing for sure. Um, it's uh, it's it's been quite robust, surprisingly so. I mean, I um, I think also of the Templeton line where you know bull markets start on pessimism, go to skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. I wouldn't say that we're at euphoria right now, but we're approaching, um, and there there. Definitely some speculative signs. Um, I think if you look at what's happening in the SPAC market, if you look at the IPO market, I think it was a cover story in Barron's a couple weeks ago around the IPO frenzy. If you look at the level of retail engagement, um, margin debt levels, the Robinhood tribe. Um, I mentioned earlier the number of stocks that are trading in the S&P above 10 times revenue. And then you look at some of the companies recently, Snowflake and Zoom and Peloton. Um, there's definitely some speculative elements um, today that I see relative to my time uh, as an investor. All that being said, I think you know now is a incredibly exciting time to be a fundamental active investor. Um, you know we. As an active investor, you, you live for dispersion, um, and the dispersion in the market is, is pretty wide uh, by all accounts. Um, I, I hate getting drawn into the value versus growth because I think it, it oversimplifies a lot, but kind of any way you go at it, 
um, you know, the gap between kind of one side of the market that the you know the growth, the secular growth winners, the defensive growth names, the story stocks like Tesla, um, and then everything else on the other side. Any any company that's got some perceived degree of uncertainty or cyclicality, there hasn't been a real bid or out, uh, appetite for until recently. And if you look at the gap between those two sides of the market, you know it's as it's as wide as it's been in some time, um, perhaps ever. And, um, you know, that creates interesting opportunities. Um, it's not a call. You know, valuations are horrible timing mechanisms, um, but they are very telling with regard to future returns. Um, and I think the side of the market, the winners uh, that have really been bid up, I think the expectations in those stocks are, are pretty full. Um, and I think there's an opportunity for them to to disappoint. And when they turn, if you look back historically, when it turns, it tends to be reasonably sharp. Um, and I mentioned, you know, going back the 30 year track record of Orbis, Japan in the nineties, um, early two thousands. Um, and now is another of those times. Um, the opportunity to lean in on the other side, uh, looks, looks pretty compelling. Now, it's difficult to do because you, you're underperforming and you're lagging and everybody wants to tell you that you've missed the boat and you're crazy and the world's changed. Um, but that's exactly why those opportunities exist um, over time. Um, and I think you're starting to see, you know, there's some interesting signs recently. Um, you know, if you look at Fangum relative to the S&P, um, it's not rolled over, but it started to to plateau. It's not leading. You know, our, our founder used to always say, "Look at the lead steers, the market bulls. The bulls are losing steam. Um, they're not demonstrating the leadership they have in the past." You look at the Russell 2000, a broader base index relative to S and P. Um, you're seeing the same thing on a relative basis. So there's there's some interesting signs recently. All that's just, it's not a forecast that we're going to roll over. Um, but, you know, these things don't, um, go forever. I'm of the belief that there are cycles to markets. All the things that you're seeing now, like value is dead. Um, these are the characteristics, uh, and elements that you see at these late stages in the cycle. Um, and I think Barry, on the other side, you know, the move, the most crowded trade the last, 10, 20 years has been the move to passive investing, indexation, um, these indices that gotten very concentrated. There's, you know, there's risk embedded in them. Um, you look at the concentration in those stocks, you look at the cross holdings um, of individual stocks across those indices and ETFs. You, you have a turn there that um, could be quite powerful. Um, and so as an investor, when you look forward, and most importantly is looking forward, I think having some exposure on the other side is, is, is warranted. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the Russell 2000, which for, I don't know, the first three quarters of 2020, dramatically underperformed all of the momentum and big cap growth. But the last couple of months of 2020 
saw a pretty robust catch-up, especially for small-cap value. What does that tell you? I think it's a bit to the point. I mean, you just let's go back. Let's backtrack for 2000. I mean, coming into the year, January, early February, um, you know, there was a view of accelerating growth. Um, and you, you were seeing that in the small caps. Um, and then COVID hit. Uh, and we had a very meaningful drawdown. Um, and then more recently, the last three months, and certainly most recently with news of the, the vaccine, um, you started to see that recovery. And I think it's, there's an expectation looking forward of, um, you know, cyclical recovery. Uh, in, in particular, those names that were disproportionately hit, which is the smaller companies um, through the COVID drawdown. So I think you're, you're seeing that manifestation. If you look at, you know, the existing positioning, um, you know, it's so lopsided that, you know, it could have, we'll see where things go from here. Obviously, the vaccine news more recently has not been that encouraging, but we try to take a longer-term view. Uh, we'll see where it goes from here, but it could, you know, it could have a decent way to go. I mean, that's certainly what the data would tell you. Huh. Quite interesting. So let's talk about the Orbis Global Equity Fund. Since 1990, that has crushed its benchmark. Uh, how have you guys managed to accomplish this in an era of relative underperformance by value? And what is your role at Orbis Global Equity Fund? So... I mean, going back to inception in 1990, it's been across many cycles, and we are proud of that track record. But it's been, I mean, let's be clear, Barry, it's been a difficult decade uh, the last 10 years for us. And, you know, we haven't performed the level uh, of expectations that we, that we hold out for ourselves. I think if you look back in history, and that's across, you know, a number of different market environments, you know, we tend to do best in what would be air quotes value market, and we kind of hang in there in the growth markets. And that's exactly what you've seen kind of this last three, five, seven years, certainly relative to our value peers. I mean, our value peers, pure value peers have, you know, gotten you know, really punished during this. And I think the difference there for us is that and I touched on this a little bit earlier, is we're intrinsic values. So we're not, we're not didactically going after just the low price to book. We have a more, much more holistic view of what we think value is, and we go after those gaps. And that can be, you know, a dirty industrial company, or it, can be, it could be a technology or Internet-based company. Um, and that's allowed us to be more flexible over time. But there also tend to be, you know, bigger periods and I mentioned this, if you go back to 1990, you know, Japan was 45% of the index. It's just as important as what you don't own. We didn't own anything in Japan. And then in 2000s. And I think today would be similar um, in that, you know, it's been painful getting here. We have a pretty meaningful underweight to the U.S. as we sit today. And we'll see where it goes from here. But, you know, when those, when those pockets turn, when they get to those extremities like we see now, they tend to be pretty fruitful, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm pretty constructive as we look forward. Again, not, not calling the timing, you know, because it's not what we do, but, you know, based on where we're at now and how we're positioned, I think, you know, it could be, could be meaningful. So you, you hit upon something that I want to address because I'm intrigued by the concept 
you mentioned uh, as a contrarian, you're, you're constantly looking for things the crowd has overlooked. But one of the things we tend to notice over longer market cycles is that the crowd tends to be right much of the time. It, it's at those major turning points where the crowd completely loses their minds and, and gets it totally wrong. But what are the challenges of being a contrarian when you're leaning into the winds and, you know, it's an uphill battle most of the time? How, how do you manage around that? Yeah. So I think you're exactly right. And I would just observe that now is one of those times that all of those behavioral characteristics are in play. You know, the, the, the chorus is calling for it's dead. It's over. Um, I still believe in cycles. Um, the price and valuations don't matter. I still believe in price and valuations, not as a timing mechanism, but fundamentally. Um, I believe it's unlikely and unsustainable that returns will continue to compound at 15 to 20%. I don't see any reason why structurally it should have changed or shift from kind of the long-term cross-cycle returns of 7 to 8%. Yet, the popular chorus is on the other side of that. Um, and so all of the behavioral elements are in play today. Um, and in terms of how you manage it, I think it, it starts with yourself as an individual, as a decision maker. Um, I think one of the most difficult things in this business is knowing yourself and managing yourself, particularly in those situations when you know, you're underperforming in a position or in a portfolio and you look wrong and other people are telling you you're wrong. Um, clients might be heckling you and telling you are wrong. Um, and how do you make decisions in that situation uh, is one of the most important characteristics of, of what we do. Um, and then the other side of it is, you know, you want to try to put in place things that allow you to stay true to your process. Um, and that gets to the elements that I was touching on a little bit in terms of the kind of people you put in your team, the kind of culture that you create, um, how you manage your day-to-day, -day, what do you look at, and importantly, the kind of clients that you have. What, what expectations do they have for you? And then lastly, your own ownership structure, and I touched on that a little bit. Those are all things that you can try to put in place structurally to allow you to be in a position to make the best decisions when behaviorally it's most difficult. And to clarify, are you guys long only or long short? Um, our main strategy, our flagship, is long only. Yeah, because it, it's one thing to be long and wrong as the market goes up or to be long and underperform, but I can't imagine what sort of agony it would be to be short Tesla as it goes up 640%. Uh, there, there's contrarianism, and, and then there's just... That, that, that's a, a type of yeah. pain that, that it's hard, hard to imagine. Um, but let's stick with the um, bottoms-up stock picking, because a lot of what we're discussing is very much the macro environment. You, you mentioned uh, monetary yeah. policy. We talked about COVID. There are so many broad macro issues. How do you guys um, think about the macro situation? It, it seems unavoidable, at least in 2020. Is macro part of your process if you're a bottoms-up stock picker? Or do you have to try not to think about what's going on in, in the broader sense? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the short answer is you have to, right? You, we're not, we're bottoms up fundamental stock pickers. We're owning businesses and their cash flows. That being said, um, you, know, you have to have an eye to the context that you're in. I think one of the things very clear going back to 2007, 2008, um, you know, the value tribe got crushed buying financials at increasingly lower price-to-book multiples into a macro environment that was not conducive. Um, and I think if you were only looking at the company and didn't have construct for the context, um, you got punished. Um, and we were not immune to that, to be clear. Um, but there's an important lesson in there in that you, you have to have an eye to the context. Um, you know, we don't have strategists in-house. We don't have economists. We're not making forecasts on GDP or anything of that nature, which we don't believe in. But you do have to have a construct of the environment in which you're in. You know, what, I, what I say to the team is, you know, you can have a great house in a bad neighborhood, and it doesn't matter how good that house is if you're in a bad neighborhood. And so you have to understand what neighborhood you're in. And a specific example for me where I've gotten really – you know, penalized is, you know, had a very stock-specific thesis in an oil and gas company, U.S. oil and gas company called Apache, right. uh, It was stock-specific and idiosyncratic that I really believed in. And a number of those elements have played out, but it's in the context of an energy space. And if WTI is at 90 versus 30, it doesn't matter what the company-specific idiosyncratic factors are. You have to have a view to the context. That's a that's a, a very specific example, but I think it it covers across the board, and I think that's how we as teams, how we interrogate and think um, to make sure that we have an eye to the context. We were just discussing the exact same thing with, despite for the past four years having the most pro-coal president in, in history, it didn't matter which coal company you owned. Um, the question was, uh, was it ugly or uglier? So I totally get the even a good house in a bad neighborhood isn't isn't going to help you. But sticking with the macro issue, you, you mentioned monetary policy and you also mentioned valuation. Let, let's tie all three of those together. How responsible is today's effectively zero interest rate, lower for longer policy affecting today's relatively high historical valuations? I mean, it's, you can't, I can't quantify it empirically, Barry, but you, I mean, when your, your risk-free rate is zero, um, and arguably your real rate is negative, that will influence, um, in a non-trivial way, how you price cash flow streams. Um, and we've seen that. Um, and to the point on context, I think one of the things I've been more critical of myself is not being more fully cognizant of that as the environment, to my analogy before, the neighborhood over the past decade. And so it's, it's been a meaningful driver. The more interesting question as investors is where are we today and what does the future look like? from where we sit today. And I try to spend more time thinking about about that. Quite, quite interesting. And we talked about ownership and thinking like an owner. 
I want to have you clarify something about Alan um, Gray. So when, when he launched Alan Gray Limited in 1973, he was a former Fidelity manager, and Alan Gray became South Africa's biggest private investment manager. You mentioned he put his equity stake in Orbis in a trust, and that's now perpetual. What is the... Is, is that the entire ownership structure, or are employees also owners of the firm? Um, employees are owners of the firm. Um, and so Alan uh, put his, in his family, um, put his entire interest into a charitable trust, which will be held as the controlling shareholder in perpetuity. Um, I think there are, there are a couple elements to this. One is just I mean, it's a phenomenal thing what he's done, and I think it gives a degree of purpose to what I do in my own work, knowing um, that there's a set of beneficiaries behind that in terms of what we do. But from a business standpoint, I think it's interesting on a couple of levels. First is, you know, the issue of succession investment firms uh, is a pretty storied track record. Um, If you look at how investment firms manage continuity over time, and he did it in a way that was really was very thoughtful, but quite seamless, um, to manage the long-term continuity of the firm and the leadership. Um, employees are owners of the firm um, and have a meaningful stake in the combination of the family and executives and, and staff with largest investors in the fund, um, which gets back to you know, thinking, investing like an owner. Um, but it also allows us to make decisions that are driven by what we believe in for the long term. You know, I couldn't imagine running an investment firm that was publicly traded that had quarterly earnings objectives. Um, and so you take something like our, our fee structure and refundable fee reserve, um, you know, that, that's a difficult decision. It, it's not without consequence for the firm and the partnership. But having a structure like ours allows you to take those kind of long-term decisions, um, which allows you and reinforces you to take those decisions that are contrarian to what most other people might be doing in the times that are most difficult. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful reinforcing mechanism, if that makes sense. Totally does. Quite interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. So let me jump to our five favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime 
shows or, or podcasts? What, what's keeping you entertained during lockdown? We certainly have more time uh, during COVID times. Um, so what I mentioned, uh, uh, Netflix is unorthodox. Um, a story of a young girl with Hasidic roots in Brooklyn. And just, I, I just really love the story. I thought the lead character was um, just terrifically well portrayed. Um, Guilty Pleasure, um, The Jinx, The Life and Death of David Durst. Um, just as a, one who loves to study human behavior and what motivates people, just a fascinating character study. And I'm not giving anything away, but the last kind of... 20, 30 seconds of the series is just priceless. Um, just wait for it. It's really good. Um, okay. I love documentaries. Um, American Factory, I'll mention, which won the Oscar um, story of Chinese billionaire opens factory, uh, GM, abandoned GM factory in Ohio. Um, pretty thought-provoking. Um, 13th documentary by Ava DuVernay. Um, I think, you know, really zeroing in on the history of racial inequity in the U.S. and specifically on the nation's prison system. Um, I think, you know, in our times and what's been going on in this country, uh, there's a real message there. Um, and then from podcast, present company included or excluded, Barry, um, <laughs> I, I enjoy Shane Parrish and the Knowledge Project quite a bit. Yeah, that's, that's a great pod. I, I, I'm a fan. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped guide your career and, and bring you to where you are today. So I, I have to just start with my grandfather. Um, he's really my hero. Um, he, you know, just the value of hard work and generosity. Um, I talked about growing up under his wing and a lot of who I am today is cultivated by him. Um, I'll also mention two other um, individuals. There's a program called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, which focuses on um, first-generation, low-income kids of color and gets them to Wall Street. And so when I was 19, when I was in college, I got an opportunity to go work at DLJ, um, Bill Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen Red. And it was because of this program, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And one of the individuals there is a gentleman named Sabin Streeter, who ran their venture capital group, which is called Sprout, um, and at the time, SEO was just starting to build out with kids outside of the Ivy League. And Saban came to Chicago and he met me. And not only did he check me to the program, but he said, you know, I want you to work at my firm at DLJ. And just he was just a great mentor to me then, big believer in me um, when I would question myself. Um, just a phenomenal individual. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia and not just me, but so many people he's influenced. Um, it's been uh, phenomenal uh, inspiration for me. Quite, quite interesting. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Books, what are you reading now? Or tell us about some of your favorites. So one thing I'll mention before going specifically to books, just on the question of mentors, <laughs> and this falls in the category of one something that I believe that maybe a lot of other people don't, is that I feel like I have a lot of mentors who are individuals that I've never met. Uh, what I mean by that is books. Like, books have always been mentors to me. I think you can you can read about somebody and really come to understand them. Um, 
and actually never have met them. And you understand how they think. And you, when you understand how they think, you can ask yourself in the same way that you would go see a mentor and say, you know, I'm having a challenge with this, or how would you think about this? But just ask yourself, well, what would they say? And oftentimes you can answer the question for yourself. Um, and so there have been so many individuals that I consider mentors who I've never met, um, but have been cultivated through books. Um, and so I say that just to say the universe of potential mentors, I think, is so much bigger than a lot of people acknowledge or want to give credit to. Now, to the concept of books, the, um, the actual physical book that I've probably gifted more than any other is The Art of Learning um, by Josh Waitzkin. Um, he, Josh, is a chess prodigy. I think he was the, um, he is the character for Searching for Bobby Fischer. And the thing that I, that really strikes me and I love about it is just, he, Josh is all about pursuing excellence. Um, and he, he's done it in chess and push hands and foiling. It's just, he obsesses on the craft and process of becoming world-class at something. Um, and I personally really geek out on process, um, and trying to, you know, just push and beat on your craft. And Josh articulates that. He's so thoughtful in how you think about that and break it down. Um, and just many, many lessons in there. The other book I would mention, um, that I really enjoyed, I read this summer, um, is Maria Konnikova, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention and Master Myself. So Maria's very interesting, um, true story. She got her PhD in behavioral psychology at Columbia, studying under Walter Michelle, um, famous for the marshmallow test. And... She'd never played poker before, and the book is about her learning to play poker um, and, and actually doing it quite well. And, you know, there's the aspect of playing the cards, the probabilities, which I think is a lot like investing, is just playing the probabilities, and then it's playing the players, playing the cards, which is also like investing the behavioral side. Um, and there's just a lot of takeaways in her book which is focused on poker, but for me around investing and managing yourself and the power of paying attention. Quite intriguing. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in finance as a uh, portfolio manager or an analyst? There's a, there's a book I read a couple years ago called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of American Elite by William Dershowitz, professor at Yale. Um, and what he really draws on is, as you just belied a little bit in the title, is like, you know, as a professor at Yale, seeing these incredible young people, the brightest minds, um, but they've just been on this treadmill. Um, you know, they had perfect test scores and great grades, and they're just on this treadmill of continuing to, in air quotes, demonstrate excellence, but maybe lost a little bit in terms of how to think creatively and critically and the real purpose behind what they're doing. And, and in some ways that resonates with me in terms of what you're seeing um, in young people, like these phenomenal people, but they haven't had a ton of adversity and um, really thinking deeply about what it is they want to do and why they want to do it. Um, and, less about the treadmill and the brand um, 
and the external affirmation, but for what they want to do. Um, and so my advice to a young person would be around that. Um, and specifically, if they're looking to go in investment management, it'd be pretty similar to the same thing that I'd say somebody, you know, in college or high school. It's like, don't go for, um, you know, what you want to go for is the best professor. It doesn't matter what the, the name of the course is, but, you know, find an exceptional professor. Um, there's magic in that. And the same thing when thinking about, you know, taking your first step is find a phenomenal individual that you connect with and work for them. It doesn't matter what the brand is. Everybody's drawn to the best brand um, or what they think is most coveted, but find a phenomenal individual. Forget about the brand and all of the accoutrements around it um, and work for that individual. And I think what you'll take away from that will be so much deeper than um, just going for that, that external validation. Good advice. Um, and our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 25, 30 years ago when you were first ramping up? So, you know, I started my investment career on the private side doing distress turnaround investing. Um, and when I started my public market investing career, I was all about that. You know, hard assets, downside cash flow. And I think what I have learned over time, and you've seen this evolution in other investors, is really the importance of human capital and culture and people. Um, and, you know, I think the phenomenal companies that really compound over time have something about their human capital and their culture um, that is unique, distinctive, enduring, not always, but enduring, and allows them to compound in, in a way that is much more meaningful than buying that cigar butt. And so I think what I wish I would have focused on earlier was with that element um, rather than just looking for the 50-cent cigar butts. Quite, quite interesting. Thanks, Adam, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Adam Carr. He is the head of Orbis U.S. and portfolio manager at the $37 billion Orbis Investment International firm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 390 or so such interviews that we've had over the past, is it six years? Oh my goodness, that's a long time. Uh, you can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fixed. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. They're free. They'll show up in your mailbox every day at 7 a.m. Check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Marufal is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.